We move on to Dr. James Carter, who's a Dr. Dr. James Carter, both a paediatric registrar at the Royal Children's Hospital, uh, and he's contented in paediatrics as it affords him the opportunity to work with a patient group who can communicate at his level. <laughs> Prior to regressing back to his childhood, James started out his adult life studying the brain, completing a PhD, that's the second doctor, uh, in cognitive neuroscience uh, at Duke University. Jimmy Carter is possibly uh, the greatest gentleman you'll ever meet. And it's my pleasure to invite him to the stage. Thank you, Aaron. You're far too kind as always. And um, good evening, everybody. And I, I hope you're enjoying Laborious Story so far this evening. I certainly am, and uh, what a great couple of talks to get us underway. And I must pass on my congratulations on selecting the site for the, uh, for the, the rover. I think that's um, an unbelievable accolade, and uh, I would welcome another round of applause for that. Um, I've been to the last couple of Laboratory events, and I think they're fantastic. And might I say, too, um, what a great choice of venue by the organisers. This is a fantastic venue for this. And I really hope now, Laboratory's been going for over a year, and I really hope now it becomes a Melbourne institution and what a great, uh, what a great place to have it here. But one of the things I've noticed with um, the laboratories I've attended is that a lot of our science heroes are from a long time ago or lived a long way away. The hero I'm going to be talking about tonight is still alive. Um, he lives here in Melbourne and he achieved all of his great success just a few miles up the road at, um, on Victoria Parade in East Melbourne. His name's Professor Graham Clark, and he invented the multiple channel cochlear implant, otherwise known as the bionic ear. And tonight I'm gonna to tell you a little bit about his story. But before I go any further, I think we're at around about the halfway point of the evening, so I thought I'd just change, up, change things up a little bit for you guys. Um, and we'll just have a bit of a musical break. So we're gonna play a song. This is something I pre-recorded a bit earlier on uh, today. So Maestro, if we could have the music, please. I didn't pre-record that earlier today. That's just some Italian guy was singing that. And the reason I play that for you guys is because that's one of my favourite sounds. I can't imagine there ever being a greater composition of sound than that. Um, and I'm sure for all of you, you've, you've, you can imagine some of your own favourite sounds, be they musical or otherwise. But now what I want you to imagine just for a moment is that you couldn't hear that, that you'd never heard Nessim Dorma by Pavarotti, 
um, that you'd never heard any sounds at all, that you'd never heard speech. Of course, what I'm asking you to try and imagine is to imagine that you're deaf. But as soon as I say that, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? How can any of us, um, tr any of us who can actually hear, how can any of us truly imagine what it's like to be deaf? Well, Helen Keller, the famous author who was both blind and deaf, she said that blindness cuts you off from things, um, but deafness cuts you off from people. So I think that makes it just a little bit easier for us to imagine um, uh, what it's like to be deaf. And now I want you to try and imagine something even harder. Imagine trying to invent a way to allow people who are born deaf to be able to hear. Well, that's what Professor Graham Clark did, and he's a hero of mine, and more importantly, he's a hero to over 300,000 people that have now been the recipients of the gift that he's um, given to the world. Um, so let me share a little bit of his story with you. His story is that he grew up, or his story begins that he grew up in a place called Camden in New South Wales, and he spent a lot of time in his um, dad's chemist shop. His dad was the local chemist, um, pharmacist, and Graham was a very inquisitive young boy. In fact, Graham's hero as a young boy was Louis Pasteur, perhaps the most famous chemist of all time. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a young boy, my hero was Dennis Lilly. So um, <laughs> I guess that's the difference between Graham Clark and myself. But anyhow, Graham spent a lot of time um, at his dad's chemist shop, and his dad was quite hard of hearing. He was not profoundly deaf, but he, he suffered quite bad hearing loss. Um, and so um, this resulted in many embarrassing situations in the chemist shop. As you know, chemists often have to discuss quite sensitive issues with their customers. And you can imagine the kind of scenario, can't you? Hello, Mrs Wilson, how are you today? Oh, I'm, I'm good, thanks, Mr Clark. I just need some cream for my thrush. What's that, Mrs Wilson? You'll have to speak up. I need some cream for my thrush. You get the idea, don't you? It would go on and on. And so there was many embarrassing scenarios for, um, for the customers, for Graham's dad, and for Graham himself. So Graham vowed, as a 10-year-old boy, that he was going to find a way to allow deaf people to hear. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the only vow I ever made as a 10-year-old boy was that if I ever had children, I'd never force them to eat pumpkin. <laughs> but that's just the difference between me and Graham Clark. So anyhow, he made that vow, um, and 33 years later, on August the 1st, 1978, uh, Graham Clark performed the world's first um, bionic implant, or implant of a bionic ear, into Rodney Saunders, a 47-year-old, um, very laconic um, Australian. And I'll talk more about Rodney shortly as well. But before I do, I want you to stop and think about what Clark did to achieve his great success. He didn't just surgically implant the world's first bionic ear, he invented it. And to do this, he had to go through medical school, do all of his medical and surgical training, do his specialty training, and ultimately he became an ear, nose and throat specialist surgeon here in Melbourne. He had a private practice in Collins Street in Melbourne. But that wasn't enough to invent a bionic ear. To do that, you need to be able to understand how the, how the ear and the brain combine to allow us to hear sound. So at the age of 31, and uh, with three very small children now to provide for, he threw in his comfortable, very well-paying job in private practice in surgery so that he could go back to being a, um, a student on very little income and do a PhD in auditory, neuro auditory neuroscience, so learning about how the brain perceives sound. 
So at this point in the evening, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Clark would have learnt over the years about how the um, how we're able to hear or how the ear is able to hear. Now I'll see if I can get this little gadget out of my pocket. Oh, there you go, I can. Can everybody see what I'm holding up? No, of course you can't. It's stupid that I'm even holding it up. And in fact, what I'm holding up is not the cochlea. It's just a crappy little piece of paper that we cut out earlier today. The reason I'm holding it up is just to demonstrate to you how small the cochlea is. The cochlea is, in fact, four millimetres in diameter, and it's spiral-shaped, kind of shaped like a seashell. Now, the cochlea is our hearing organ. It's a sensory organ, um, and it contains thousands of sensory cells which, in a nutshell, do the job of transducing the, the vibration energy of sound waves into an electrical current. And then that electrical signal is sent along the auditory nerve to brain cells in the hearing region of the brain. Now, so in most people who, with profound deafness, with sensory nerve deafness, it's the, it's the cells in the cochlea that are not working properly. Um, so to, to create an artificial ear, Graham Clark would have to invent a device that could do the job of the cochlea. And most importantly, um, a, an artificial ear would need to allow deaf people to hear the high-frequency sounds of speech. The sounds of speech, the vowels and the consonants, are very high-frequency sounds. Now, there are two ways by which the brain is able to perceive the frequency of sound. And one of these is very simply the timing or the pace at which the brain receives the electrical signals from the cochlea. So quite simply, a slow-paced, low-frequency signal is perceived as a low-frequency sound. And conversely, a high-paced, high-paced, high-frequency signal is perceived as a high-frequency sound. And initially, all scientific inquiry was focused on this timing code of um, frequency perception. The hope was, if you could electrically stimulate the auditory nerve at a very fast pace, then maybe you'd be able to allow deaf people to hear the high-frequency sounds of speech. Unfortunately, what all the research showed was that once you stimulated too fast, once you got beyond a certain pace, then the brain could no longer perceive those signals. The signals were just coming too quick for the brain to perceive it. So it just didn't hear any sound at all. So the only sounds the brain can hear with this, this pacing method of electrical stimulation is very slow, low-frequency sounds. And because of this, through the 1960s and, and 1970s, um, virtually the entire scientific community had accepted that it would be impossible to allow deaf people to hear the high-frequency sounds of speech by directly stimulating the auditory nerve with an electrical current. And by the completion of his PhD, Graham Clark ostensibly agreed with that position. He agreed with all the critics, with one caveat. There's a second code that um, allows our brain to perceive um, the frequency of sound. And it's referred to as the location code. Now, the easiest way to understand the location code is to think of the cells in the cochlea and the brain cells in the hearing region of the brain as being arranged in a very organised fashion, just like the keys on a piano keyboard. If I play a key at the left-hand side of a piano keyboard, it plays a low-pitched sound. 
if I play a key at the right-hand side of a piano keyboard, plays a high-pitched sound. Even if there was soundproof glass between you guys and me, if you saw me strike a key at the right side of a piano keyboard, you would know that I was playing a high-pitched key based purely on the location of the key that I struck. Well, the cells in the cochlea and the brain cells in the hearing region of the brain are arranged in a very similar fashion. And so Clark's thinking was, if he could electrically stimulate the auditory nerve at several different locations on the auditory nerve, um, he might be able to, um, to stimulate the high-frequency sounds of speech. And the reason for this is that um, because of the shape of the cochlea, remember how I said it was spiral-shaped? Because of that shape, high-frequency sounds tend to stimulate cells at the base of the cochlea. So if a woman was to let out a high-pitched scream, then, um, then that would stimulate cells at the base of the cochlea, and that would then in turn play the high-frequency piano keys in the brain. Alternatively, if we had a low-frequency sound like, say, a foghorn, Natalie, oh, she's given us nothing for that one, but if we had a low-frequency sound, then that would stimulate cells at the tip of the cochlea, and in turn, they, um, they would play the, the low-frequency piano keys in the brain. So like I say, Clark's thinking was, if he could stimulate the auditory nerve at several locations, particularly at the base of the cochlea, where the high-frequency piano keys can get played, then maybe, just maybe, he could let deaf people hear the high-frequency sounds of speech. It would be a challenge far greater than just stimulating the auditory nerve at one location with one single electrical current. But over the next nine years, he would ultimately develop a prototype, multiple-channel cochlear implant, that consisted of 10 separate electrodes that could stimulate the auditory nerve at 10 separate locations. It was a remar remarkable feat of ingenuity, biomedical engineering and surgical precision. Of course, along the way, he met and had to overcome many obstacles. Excuse me. Not the least of which was um, very strong and constant um, criticism from within the scientific community to the point where even his former PhD supervisor, who was a world expert in auditory neuroscience, would later write to Clark urging him to stop his efforts and to stop giving false hope to the deaf. deaf. But somewhat ironically, probably the most vocal protest group um, came from within the deaf community itself. And it seems bizarre, doesn't it? Why on earth would the deaf protest against this new technology which could potentially allow them to hear sounds? Well, it seems there's a few reasons, and one of those was that deaf people saw this as hearing people kind of saying, you know what, you're not quite right, you're not quite normal, you're not quite human, and to make you more human, we need to kind of instill this artificial, or install this artificial device into you. The Six Million Dollar Man was the, was the hit TV show of that era, and it had many people fearing that um, in some way, these bionic implants would turn you into part robot and, and completely take away your human dignity. And the other thinking in the deaf community, and this is still a view that's widely held by many deaf people today, is that if you're deaf, the deaf community is very much your world, um, and you should embrace that and immerse yourself within that community. And so in some ways, the bionic ear was seen as a threat on the kinship of, of that community. And the deaf pulled off what I think is one of the most effective forms of protest I've ever heard. Um, they turned up to a conference, an auditory neuroscience conference in Paris on one occasion and just proceeded to blow whistles as loudly as they possibly could. 
and it worked a charm because none of the presenters could um, could 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 be heard, so the, the conference came to a halt, and, and of course all this loud noise didn't bother the protesters at all because they were deaf. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, the, the protesters of the deaf weighed very heavily on Clark as he was going through his project. And probably the biggest impact they had was to severely impact the level of funding he had for his research. By far and away, the biggest um, source of income of research funding that Clark got through this period was via annual telethons that were held on what was then Channel O, what's now the TV station Channel 10. And in a three-year period, these raised an incredible sum of funds, which were all directed towards Clark and his sensory um, nerve deafness program. And it was really the lifeblood of his funding. But by 1976, the, the deaf community um, had lobbied so hard that they successfully got Reg Ansett, who owned Channel O at, the, at that time, to effectively cease those telethons. Um, because he couldn't afford the bad publicity. So by 1977 and 1978, things were getting very desperate for Clark. His funds were severely drying up. Um, he was close to having a prototype um, bionic ear ready to go, but very worryingly, he still didn't have a deaf person volunteering to be the guinea pig to have this thing stuck inside them. And when you think about it, why on earth would you volunteer to be the first guinea pig for this? Even if you weren't fundamentally opposed to the idea of, of a bionic ear, if you're deaf, it's not like you've got a fatal illness. So why would you put your hand up to undergo um, an eight-hour operation to have your head cut open, to have a couple of pieces of metal inserted inside your head, an operation that could potentially kill you, and there being absolutely no guarantee of success? Well, thankfully, um, three volunteers did come forward ultimately and they came together at a reasonably um, close period of time. And when Clark posed the question of why did you volunteer to Rod Saunders, the man who he would ultimately choose, Rod's response was, it's a nightmare being deaf. Continual silence is like a prisoner. I just want to hear voices again or to hear the, sound of dog, the sounds of dogs barking. Rod was ultimately chosen by Clark to be the first recipient because, very importantly, Rod had previously been able to hear until a couple of years previously, but became profoundly deaf as a result of a car accident um, and suffering a bad head injury. And on top of that, Rod had also been in a choir, so he had a very good understanding of, of the characteristics of sound. And that would be very important so that if Rodney was able to hear anything at all, he'd be able to provide very useful feedback to Graham and his team about what it was that he was perceiving. So anyway, Rob was chosen. They did, that, they did the surgical implant on August the 1st, 1978. And then they had to wait a month. They had to wait for all of the post-surgical inflammation to settle down in Rod's brain um, before there'd be any chance for him to hear. And a month later, they got him back and they hooked him up. I should point out that at this stage, the bionic ear consists of Rod having some metal devices inside his head, wires coming out of his head, and the rest of the bionic ear was a big box like one of these amplifiers down here that they then had to hook Rodney up to. So they got him in, hooked him up, turned it on, no joy, couldn't hear a thing. Got him back a few days later, adjusting the equipment and so forth. Again, couldn't hear, it, hear a thing. And this went on until the third occasion. And um, again, they hooked him up on the third occasion, fiddling around, he still couldn't hear anything. And the team was really becoming quite despondent that, hey, maybe this bionic ear just isn't gonna work. And then one of the technicians hit a computer key and Rod thought maybe he could sense something. They hit the computer key again, um, and Rod still thought maybe he could hear something, wasn't really sure. So Graham Clark decided that the only way they'd know if Rodney was actually hearing something in the environment was if they played him a tune. 
a really well-known tune, a tune that, that Graham would, uh, sorry, that Rod would definitely recognise if he heard it. It wasn't Ness and Dorma, but they, they played him this song and Roddy was sitting down and all of a sudden, without saying a word, Rod just jumped to his feet and stood to attention. The song they were playing him was God Save the Queen, um, which at the time was the Australian National Anthem and, of course, protocol is that you, you stand to attention. So it was a very triumphant moment and the team, the team all hugged and um, celebrated wildly. It was almost as, as if they'd scored a goal at the World Cup and, um, and it was great triumph. But Clark knew that they weren't quite there yet. For a bionic ear to be truly effective, it had to allow deaf people to hear those high-frequency sounds of speech and they hadn't demonstrated that yet. So another three months went past of continuing to refine the equipment, continuing to retrain Rodney's brain until finally... Um, the momentous day arrived. And thankfully, it's a, it's a moment that is captured on video footage, and I think Natalie will be tweeting out the, the web address where you, can, where you can see this footage. And for any of you who go and look at the, the footage, you'll see that it's actually some of the most underwhelming footage you'll ever see for one of the most overwhelming moments in scientific history. And what it consists of is, is basically um, uh, an audiologist and Rod Saunders are on camera. And the audiologist is saying some words to Rod and he has to repeat those words back to him. But initially, he's got a list of, a list of the words in front of him. He's just got a bit of paper. And so he's got those, that list as a visual prompt. So if she says a word, he can look at the list and choose for that one which he, whichever he thinks she said. And he's getting most of these words right. He's getting some of them wrong. And then from off camera, what you see is Professor Graham Clark step across, take the list off Rodney and say, let's see how you go without the list. And Rodney kind of looks at him like, like you're crazy, man. And um, he actually says something like, oh, I won't have a clue. But lo and behold, the audiologist says the word raw. And Rodney straight away says raw. And when you're watching the footage, it's almost as if for Rodney, the penny hasn't quite dropped as to what a momentous um, event this is. Of course, the moment wasn't lost on um, Graham Clark. His entire life's work had culminated in this moment. He stepped into an adjoining room and broke down and cried. Um, Rodney Saunders continued to assist Graham Clark and his team for the next 21 years as they continued to improve and refine the cochlear implant. Rodney died in 2007 at the age of 76 and his last wish was to, to, to donate his um, brain and the bones of his inner ear to neuroscience for further research. That operation was performed in 1978. By 1985, Professor Graham Clark had implanted the, uh, performed the world's first surgical implant of a bionic ear into a child. And these days, um, children as young as two to three months old have, have been the recipients of the cochlear implant. So achieving what he had vowed to as a 10-year-old boy, Graham Clark had found a way to allow children who were born deaf to hear. In 2003, Graham Clark was made an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine, joining the likes of Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, and his own hero, Louis Pasteur. So Professor Graham Clark truly is a hero of science, and I thank you for listening to his story. <laughs>